six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio. Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Today we're going to return to the issue of PFAS contamination in Wisconsin. Though this issue is often heard in the news, the voices of people impacted by PFAS are seldom heard. These persistent chemicals are found in water all over Wisconsin, making drinking water unsafe in some communities. A new podcast from Midwest Environmental Advocates and Wisconsin Sea Grant takes us to some of these communities to hear from people being impacted by PFAS and learn how they're advocating for clean water. The podcast is called Public Trust. Let's have a listen to the trailer. You've got to have water and food. And when somebody takes that away from you, you got a right to get upset, you know? Public Trust is a new podcast from Midwest Environmental Advocates and Wisconsin Sea Grant. Fight the battle, don't give up, um, and be patient. In the first season, we travel across the state of Wisconsin to hear how PFAS contamination is affecting the lives of the people who live here. And experts help us understand what comes next. It's beautiful, and it's been ruined. We want the safe, long-term alternative. And we don't want to have to pay for it because we didn't create the problem. There's a corporate playbook that they all know how to go by, but there's not a citizen playbook. 2001 was when the accident, the plane accident happened. I was under the assumption for many, many years that it was harmless. What are we doing to this planet? What are we leaving? We here in the United States wait till we have a problem and then we try to solve it. If we don't take care of this, we're leaving it for our children, or our children's children. That's the trailer from the new podcast, Public Trust, a collaboration of Midwest Environmental Advocates and Wisconsin Sea Grant, which takes us into communities around Wisconsin affected by PFAS contamination. Here to talk about the story of this podcast and efforts to address PFAS contamination in Wisconsin is Rochelle Wilson. Rochelle is the co-producer and host of the Public Trust podcast and a former Public Humanities Fellow at Midwest Environmental Advocates. She is currently also a producer of the Wisconsin Public Radio program Central Time and my former colleague here at WORT. Thanks for coming in today, Rochelle. It's good to be back. We're also going to be joined over the course of the hour by three of Rochelle's collaborators on the Public Trust podcast, Gavin Dainert, Tony Wilkin-Gibart, and Bonnie Willison. And I will tell you more about each of them as we get to them over the course of the hour. And I also want to welcome listeners today. We'd love for you to have to join our conversation. If you have a question for our guests about PFAS or uh, the politics or legal framework surrounding PFAS in Wisconsin, or just storytelling about environmental justice issues like PFAS, definitely give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on X or on Facebook. To start our roundtable today, we have Gavin Daynert, Emerging Contaminant Scientist at Wisconsin Sea Grant, a statewide program of basic and applied research, education, and outreach dedicated to the stewardship of the nation's Great Lakes and ocean resources. Welcome to a public affair, Gavin. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Douglas. So, Gavin, I feel like it's important with this issue. People hear about it uh, every once in a while in the news, but uh, may or may not know much about it. Tell us, first of all, what PFAS are. Yeah, yeah, it's a great place to start. So PFAS 
also known as per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. Um, we refer to them as PFOS, just easier, less of a mouthful. And these are a family of man-made chemicals that uh, usually contain at least uh, a couple elements, mainly carbon and fluorine. Okay, and how prevalent or widespread are they in Wisconsin and Wisconsin's water in particular? Yeah, that's a good question. So a lot of what we know about PFAS, we're actually still learning and kind of learning where they are. Um, they're, you know, each year we're finding more and more locations that have PFAS in them, whether that be in our surface water, whether that be in groundwater, um, or, you know, different plants and animals. But they are, they do seem to be pretty widespread across the state. Um, and, you know, as I kind of said, each year we're finding more and more of them. Uh, you just mentioned plants and animals there, Gavin. And when we do hear about PFAS in the news, we mostly hear about water contamination. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what's known about plants and animals? Obviously, this is harvest time, deer hunting season. Um, these are things that people might have in mind as they're harvesting um, wild uh, creatures among us. Yeah. Part of, part of the reason we hear uh, quite often about PFAS in water, in our uh, surface waters, lakes, and our groundwaters is because it is water so or very highly water soluble. So it, it can easily get to our water sources. But once it's in our water sources or in, in the environment, it can actually um, bioaccumulate or it can go from the environment into the animal. Um, in particular, this is a lot of where the research is going right now, is we're trying to learn how different PFAS are moving from, like I said, the water into different plants, into different animals. What's interesting about PFAS is there is, you know, 14,000 of them, you know, unknown really exactly how many there are. And each of them potentially can um, bioaccumulate or go from, you know, the environment into the animals at different rates. They can also store in different spots. So a lot of that research is learning how it's going, you know, directly into, you know, potentially deer, potentially fish, um, potentially other um, uh, agricultural food that we are consuming as well. So when you talk about bioaccumulation, um, is this process similar to what was experienced with something like DDT, um, which scientists eventually learned was affecting uh, birds of prey uh, and their eggs and their ability to reproduce? Um, back in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, people were working on that, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the one that a lot of people um, know a lot about is, is uh, mercury, right, is how, you know, our... Um, as the older the fish gets or the bigger the fish gets, the higher up a trophic level or the higher up a food web it gets, mm -hmm. you tend to get higher concentrations um, of, of, you know, whether it be DDT or heavy metals as it went up. What's really interesting about PFAS is since there's so many different versions of it, they don't all seem to follow that same pattern. As in, you know, sometimes we can find actually quite high levels of PFAS in very low trophic level animals. Um, in particular, one that was pretty famous recently was we found very high levels of PFAS in rainbow smelt um, up in Lake, Lake Superior. And those are definitely lower on the food web, right, than when we typically think about maybe like a salmon or lake trout, those um, mm -hmm. fish that are much higher up. Thanks. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't heard that um, before. Let's return 
to we'll get back to the kind of investigation of of the ecosystem and how PFAS might be spreading the ecosystem in a minute. But let's return to drinking water quickly to set up a clip we're going to hear from this podcast. Um, tell us briefly about how PFAS makes drinking water unsafe for people. Yes. So. Um, so each, as I kind of started to mention, each of these PFAS, right, they're, they're all slightly different. So um, some of them, the two most famous ones that we hear the most about are PFOA and PFOS. Um, and those can actually get into our groundwater, get into our drinking water. And so uh, the state has uh, drinking water groundwater standards for them to limit the amount of that contaminant that can be in our water that we then are consuming. Um, and these drinking water um, standards, they're actually health times, or sorry, they are uh, full lifetime standards. So they are trying to protect you at a level of you drinking this water for your entire life. Um, and we have uh, in this podcast, Public Trust, uh, co-produced by Wisconsin Sea Grant, and Midwest Environmental Advocates in episode one, um, some first-person accounts of drinking the w- contaminated water or trying to avoid drinking contaminated water um, from folks up in French Island near La Crosse. And we're going to hear a clip of them talking about basically the concerns that they have about uh, their drinking water supply and how their lives have had to adjust because their water is contaminated here. So here's a clip from episode one of the Public Trust podcast. Peter's newborns are now three years old and his family still cannot use any tap water. While the Culligan water is a lifeline for these families, it's difficult to have to put so much thought and effort day in and day out into your water supply. I've actually got six jugs of water in the back of the car because after we stopped with the kids, I was coming home, I'm like, hey, we got got to stop real quick and grab water before we get home because we're on our last jug, so. I think for me, the, the strangest part or the hardest part about it is is getting the water itself. You know, when you're when you're in this little warehouse with pallets and stacks of water and you're loading into your car and you kind of like it, it almost has this dystopian feel to it where you're like, this isn't this isn't a scene that most people picture in America having having to go to a warehouse to get bottles of water because you can't drink the water out of your tap at home. Nobody wants to lose their private well. You know, when you've had your own well and your own water, it's really hard to let go of. And I'll tell you, it's, it's especially hard to let go of because our well water tasted amazing. And so it's hard for people to give that up. I want to be able to walk right over there and stick a cup under the faucet and be able to drink it. I want to be able to make ice cubes that I don't have to go to my bottled water and put the ice cube tray under there and stick it in the freezer. That is a clip from episode one of the Public Trust podcast produced by Midwest Environmental Advocates and the Sea Grant, Wisconsin Sea Grant. And I'm talking right now with Gavin Daynert, who's Emerging Contaminant Scientist at Wisconsin Sea Grant. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and we're talking about PFAS contamination in Wisconsin and this new podcast, which tries to take us into the lives of people impacted by PFAS contamination. So Gavin, we just heard from some folks there in French Island. Um, what, from, from a scientist's perspective, can you tell us about uh, the possibilities for 
remediating PFAS contamination. These folks up in French Island, what are the prospects for the realities of their drinking water situation changing? Yeah, um, so that's great. So when you come, when we're thinking about drinking water, there's a lot of actually research and technology that's going into it right now to try to figure out the best way to actually take this PFAS out of our water. If we're thinking kind of on a home scale, one of the best routes that we have right now is kind of implementing, like adding a reverse osmosis kind of treatment to our to our water source. Unfortunately, that is expensive, right? It's not it's not the, the cheapest fix, but it will actually pull out a large portion of those PFAS. Um, it is really good actually at pulling out other contaminants as well. So it's not just going to be taking out PFAS, but other potential contaminants. But again, this also does have kind of a, a, a shelf life, right? It, it won't take out all of them um, per se. We won't get it down to zero, but it will take a good portion of it, that out. And then the second one that is, you know, uh, there's a lot of research going into it is what's called a, a granu granulated um, carbon that you can actually, or granulated activated carbon. And what this is actually really good is it can pull out potentially 100% of the PFAS. Now, this is usually, right now, it's being done at a much larger scale, not necessarily at a home, a single home. But this research is actually showing that you can pull out all the PFAS um, again, though, what happens when you use this, this GAC, the granulated activated carbon, is it will take out all the PFAS for a certain amount of time, but eventually um, it kind of gets full and then that, the, the carbon has to replace, be replaced. So those are kind of two of the ways, there's some other research that's going on um, of ways of how we can kind of pull PFAS out of our, our drinking water. So it sounds like a lot of research in process about how to address the issue, but we're also finding out uh, a lot about the ways still that the these chemicals are spreading in exactly. uh, the ecosystems around us. And uh, before we let you go, Gavin, and move on to some other collaborators on this project, uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about episode three of this podcast, which will drop uh, next week, which features your collaboration with tribal communities in northern Wisconsin. Tell us more about this collaboration and what you're researching there together. Yeah. So I was uh, kind of fortunate enough to um, be reached out by Glyphwick or the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. Um, and they had uh, a lot of questions and concerns about what are PFAS, what do they mean to me, and can they get into our, our harvestable goods? So I, working with Glyphwick and the, the Voigt Task Force, um, I, we got to kind of put together a proposal or a research project that explores how PFAS can move from the environment, right, from our water sources, our lakes, um, into harvestable goods. And the harvestable goods of which we are going to focus on first as a, as a kicking off point is uh, maple syrup. How is it going from our, you know, our groundwater, sh our sugar bushes into our maple sap, which eventually could be in, in your maple syrup. And then the other two big harvestable goods we're going to focus on are fish, meaning like wild, or sorry, fish as in walleye, and uh, muskies, so two of these fish species that are very um, quite often harvested by the tribes. And then the third one is going to be wild rice. So we're going to kind of explore a little bit of both the plant side and the animal side, as we know that different PFAS, because of their you know functional groups and everything, they will accumulate differently based off of plants, based off of animals, and even 
you know, similar species may accumulate different too. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that sneak preview of what we'll hear about in episode three, Gavin. And then finally, um, would you be willing to share with us a little bit about your perspective as a scientist on working on a podcast? Like what have you learned about public communication of science through working on this project? That, that is the, that's a great question. Uh, a lot. <laughs> More than I, I could probably put into a short amount of time. Um, but really, I think that the biggest takeaway I've been able to come out of this podcast is how to talk about a contaminant or PFAS in, you know, hopefully a non-alarming way where like this contaminant is out there. We're trying to learn about it. And our goal is to inform rather than, you know, kind of scare um, about the information of PFAS. So I think it's both been learning how to communicate it, you know, to people, but then like, what's the best, you know, voice and messaging that we can do to put out there. Thanks so much, Gavin, for sharing your perspectives and your experiences with this podcast. Good luck with your continuing work there at Wisconsin Sea Grant. Uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been talking with Gavin Daynert, Emerging Contaminant Scientist at Wisconsin Sea Grant, about his role in the Public Trust podcast uh, recently released from Midwest Environmental Advocates and Wisconsin Sea Grant. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes. We'd love for you to join this conversation about PFAS contamination in Wisconsin and ways to communicate to the public about this issue. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you have a question or a story or anecdote you'd like to share. I'm going to transition now to the next member of our roundtable. Today, we have with us Tony Wilkin-Gibbert, Executive Director of Midwest Environmental Advocates, a nonprofit law center that works to secure and protect the rights of all people to healthy water, land, and air. Welcome to A Public Affair, Tony. Thanks so much for having me, Douglas. Thanks for being on. Um, for First of all, Tony, tell us about uh, how Midwest Environmental Advocates is helping Wisconsin communities address PFAS contamination broadly, and then we'll get into um, some of the issues in this podcast a little bit more specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, uh, Midwest Environmental Advocates is a nonprofit environmental law center, and we work directly with communities who are on the front lines of some of the most pressing environmental challenges in the state. We directly represent individuals and grassroots groups, and we partner with ordinary folks like the people that um, uh, whose stories uh, are featured in the podcast. And we believe that when we're able to combine our expertise around environmental law with their passion, their dedication, and their expertise, we end up with results that defend uh, and protect the rights of all of us to healthy water, land, and air. Uh, and as the state uh, is confronting this emerging contaminant issue, and uh, it's been de developing over the last several years. MEA has worked directly with community members uh, in Marinette, Wisconsin, which many uh, will know is a, a site of an extensive uh, PFAS plume from a firefighting factory uh, manufacturing facility there. Um, and uh, we've worked with folks on French Island and around the state as folks have discovered issues. We focused on a, a couple of um, policies. One, we've worked to develop water quality standards for groundwater, uh, surface water, and our drinking water. And we can talk a little bit more about those. 
And we've also worked to ensure that the state has the legal authority it needs to hold PFAS polluters accountable. We've heard about how it will be very expensive to remove PFAS from our drinking water. And it's important that um, those who are responsible for putting the chemicals into the environment pay their fair share as well. So we've been working to make sure that those legal authorities um, continue to protect Wisconsinites around the state. Thanks for giving us both a sense of uh, what Midwest Environmental Advocates is working on related to PFAS and a little bit of the legal framework uh, surrounding this emerging contaminant. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what policy and the law can do and what's lacking still as we go here. But to set the um, foundation for that conversation, I think it'd be great to listen to another clip uh, from the podcast itself from um, episode two. And we're lucky to have Rochelle Wilson, who's the host of the podcast with us in the studio today. So tell us a little bit more about this clip we're about to hear, um, Rochelle, uh, with Mike Jorgensen. Yeah, so my co-producer, Bonnie Willison from the Wisconsin Sea Grant, she and I went to French Island back in March and or April it was actually, and we spoke with some residents there, one of which was Mike Jorgensen. He is a retired firefighter and he had been working unbeknownst to him with PFAS contaminated firefighting foam for many years um, in the line of duty. So he spoke with us very passionately about how he wishes that he had known um, what was in this firefighting foam and how there is evidence that authorities knew that this might not be entirely safe. Um, so when he spoke with us, it was you know, pretty clear to me how much of an effect this has had on him, not only personally, but throughout the community and kind of feeling that the state can do more to, to, to remediate this within that community. Yeah, so let's hear from uh, Rochelle Wilson talking to Mike Jorgensen on the Public Trust podcast here, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what Mike and others say the state could be doing. Um, we did do training at the airport. The, the ground was unprotected. We would dump barrels of whatever we could get our hands on that would burn, and we would dump it on the ground and light it, and we would use the, the foam to uh, train and practice and learn how to put out fires with the foam. The way it was explained to me from the older firefighters is that when this, when La Crosse first got set up to be able to use this on their fire trucks, um, you know, the chemical companies, uh, salespeople and that were in, in town and said that this chemical or this product that we're using, AFFF, aqueous film forming foam, was the same as dish soap. So that's what we, were under the premise of the whole time that it was harmless, that we could wade through it and walk through it and it would not hurt us. When did you find out that that wasn't the case? I, I don't know, probably 30 years, 20 years plus after. I think we started using it in the late, late 60s, early 70s. I started in 1977 in the fire department. So we had been using it or they had been using it for a while. Mm -hmm. And when did you find out about PFAS in this community here in French Island in your well? Um, well, when the, when the news broke two years ago, two-ish years ago is when we found out that, you know, that it was, had migrated and, you know, and we had our well tested and sure enough, 
you got it. And how did that make you feel being a firefighter who worked with all that firefighting foam professionally, then finding out that maybe some of that exact same, you know, firefighting foam is part of what's contributed to the PFAS contamination in the place you ended up? You know, it was a requirement that we use that foam and trained with it, required by the federal government for all airports to have it, use it, and train with it. So, you know, it's kind of our out of our hands. I, I feel bad about it, but like I said, I was under the assumption for many, many years that it was harmless. We spent hours talking to people on French Island who have felt the real effects of contamination from AFFF foam. So I thought, surely AFFF foam has been banned, right? So that thought-provoking question as Rochelle Wilson takes us on this journey uh, in this podcast, Public Trust, of uh, learning people's stories who are dealing with PFAS contamination here in Wisconsin. This this must be illegal, right? So we'll turn it back to you, Tony Wil- Wilkin Gibbert um, from Midwest Environmental Advocates, to tell us what is the legal status of um, PFAS right now? Uh, are these chemicals illegal? And um, what kind of action is being taken to regulate them? Yeah, thanks, Douglas. Um, I think it makes sense to just take a step back and okay. take a look at um, the overall uh, regulatory system that we have in this country, which allows chemical manufacturers to put products like PFAS containing firefighting foam out into the environment where uh, they exist for many years. They're uh, ubiquitous now in the environment without proving that they're safe first. Um, and so we have a system where we uh, produce chemicals, and then we ask questions later, and we're paying the price for that, uh, as we're seeing here with PFAS. Um, like Gavin explained, uh, PFAS are a class of actually thousands of compounds. Another problem that we have with our regulatory system is that if a chemical is banned, and it's very rare that chemicals are categorically banned, but if they're banned, it's usually on a, on a compound by compound basis. So the process of trying to catch up and deal with an entire class of compounds like PFAS is um, almost impossible. So we have seen a number of states begin to ban PFAS or certain compounds from certain types of products, and that's encouraging. We've seen industries start to phase out the use of certain kinds of PFAS, often though replacing them with other PFAS compounds where Um, It's unclear whether they are safe, and in some instances, there's reason to believe that they're not any safer. Um, So the entire uh, regulatory system we have um, is in some ways outmatched with this kind of uh, environmental problem. Um, So that's uh, one answer to your question. Um, You know, that that, uh, is, is... Part of the question here, the part of the question is, well, what do we do now to um, respond to PFAS contamination across the state of Wisconsin, across the country? And, uh, you know, Gavin used the term emerging contaminant. And from uh, a legal perspective, what that kind of means or connotes is that the water protection laws that we have, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, our state's groundwater protection law, they haven't yet been updated or they're in the process of being updated to respond 
to these uh, chemicals, that they uh, are kind of in an in-between state between being regulated and unregulated. And that's something that we've worked on with community members to make sure that we do at least start to have um, protections for municipal uh, water utilities and the drinking water supplies, that we have a groundwater standard that reflects uh, the risk that PFAS poses. Um, and so that's where part of where our effort has been directed is to make sure that these bedrock environmental and water protection laws that are on the books, that they are updated and begin to respond to this, um, this threat across the state of Wisconsin. So you're working in the, the legal realm, and that was a great kind of synthesis and, and brief summary of all the different ways to approach that. Tony, um, what led you to also think we want to work in the public communication realm? We want a podcast um, to uh, bring to life what this issue looks like for people on the ground dealing with it. And uh, we'll have you talk about uh, your ideas at Midwest Environmental Advocates for a podcast, and then we'll bring Rochelle back in here. Uh, that's great. Well, we were really lucky to get to work with uh, talented people like Bonnie and Rochelle and Peg Schaefer, our communications director here in our shop, um, did a great job as well. And what I'm really happy about is that listeners to the podcast, they get to hear really what is the heart of our organization, Midwest Environmental Advocates. Our work, our legal work, it always starts and ends with the kinds of, you know, kitchen table conversations that you hear in the podcast. They're the voices of ordinary people who are facing these extraordinary problems and they choose to respond in extraordinary ways by not only seeking to protect themselves and their families, but to fight for all of our rights to clean water. And it's these kinds of conversations uh, that we get to have with community members that as an organization really define our goals that help um, create our advocacy strategies. And they're ultimately when we decide if we've been successful as environmental attorneys as an organization or what we need to do next because there's always uh work ahead so um that's what i think is really um rich about uh what folks get to hear is they um they get to hear where uh water protection really starts and ends in the state of wisconsin it starts with ordinary people doing extraordinary things and it's the concern and the resolve and the dedication that you hear in the voices of those who are part of the podcast um, that you re really get a sense of what it will take and what it does take to preserve water for future generations. Yeah, so many great voices in this podcast. Rochelle, was there anything as you were talking to people like Mike Jorgensen or people in this community um, in French Island that surprised you? Um, about uh, what their, either their experiences were or as Tony was just talking about, how galvanized they were to take action? Well, I kind of want to back up a little bit and say that, you know, everything that Tony just laid out, I had to hit the ground running, learning what all of that meant mm -hmm. um, in order to approach this situation. And I think one of the things that surprised me the most was this difference when it comes to standards for PFAS in the state of Wisconsin where there's, you know, standards for municipal water, but there aren't robust standards for groundwater. And what's the difference there? Well, municipal water is what you get if you're maybe living in a city or on some kind of water utility. But groundwater, which is, 
you know, used in the tap water of up to two thirds of Wisconsinites, that's from their well water. And that's going to be a lot of rural residents. So I think I didn't, you know, understand that distinction. And when I did, it really all came home to me. I'm someone who grew up drinking groundwater in rural Michigan. And I remember my parents really had to take extra precautions. We actually ended up um, buying sort of bottled and kiosk water so that we didn't necessarily have to risk drinking from our tap and having all of this kind of agricultural runoff potentially being in that space. So that was something that really connected the dots for me working with MEA. I also think that their work is really important when it comes to something like environmental storytelling like this. People's stories, they're very vulnerable and they may may or may not want to talk with reporters or with someone who's kind of just bussing in from Madison and there might not be that trust there. But because of MEA, Folks there knew their name and they knew that we could be trusted with their stories. So I think that that was a really big opening um, into us getting these stories for the podcast. And when I went there, I think I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but I was just so overwhelmed. I actually, you know, in the days after our interviews on French Island, I felt like I had just gotten over the flu. I was so um, moved by the stories that I heard and they were so eager to share them. And um, one of the folks we interviewed, Jim Boysen, he just said, please tell it to the world. Um, You can hear him say that in episode one because they want people to know what's going on. I think it's one of those stories that's kind of underground and a lot of people may not realize that this is happening right in our backyard here in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And Tony, before we let you go, anything you'd like to build on in terms of what Rochelle just said or you were talking earlier about how you uh, shape your work at Midwest Environmental Advocates based on what you hear in conversations from people. Were there key moments in conversations or takeaways that helped you uh, think about this issue? Yeah, um, you know, I I think about um, folks like Lee Donahue, who is a town supervisor, uh, town of Campbell, which is um, French Island. And, uh, you know, I just think about the, the number of hours and, and dedication and the heartache that she has put in to advocate for her community and to hear her talk about what motivates her and why she does that. And from our point of view, from our vantage point, we get to see how that translates into policy and into action as incremental uh, as it may be. We get to see that people like Lee are making a difference, that our state's response to PFAS is more rigorous and is better than it otherwise would have been. Um, So again, it's just really great that listeners can have some insight into what that, that looks like and feels like. And I give uh, uh, Rochelle and Bonnie and Peg lots of credit for creating such a great product well thank you for joining us today Tony and sharing with us uh, your perspective on the issue of PFAS contamination what uh, Midwest Environmental Advocates is doing there and uh, what you take away from the podcast as well and thanks for helping to to bring it to the world uh, this is Tony um, excuse me Tony Wilkin Givert Um, Executive Director of Midwest Environmental Advocates. Thanks so much for being with us, Tony. Thank you. 
And next here on A Public Affair, I'd like to introduce one more guest in our roundtable today talking about this new podcast, Public Trust, from Wisconsin Sea Grant and Midwest Environmental Advocates. Bonnie Willison is one of the podcast producers, and she is a video and podcast producer with Wisconsin Sea Grant, where she showcases stories about Great Lakes science and culture. Welcome to A Public Affair, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. And uh, listeners, if you have calls, there's still time to join our conversation. If you have questions, comments, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So, Bonnie, uh, just in listening to Tony and Gavin and Rochelle so far, uh, it's easy to get a sense of this issue's breadth uh, and just how complex it is. And then you and Rochelle were tasked into making in this issue and uh, what it feels like for Wisconsinites into an engaging, accessible story. Um, how did you first approach that? Uh, what was your, your first step into thinking about how you're going to go about telling this story? Yeah, well, I know I met Rochelle when she had her fellowship and was looking to connect with people who had done narrative podcasting before, especially in the environmental realm. And so we met and a narrative podcast that's mixing tons of voices, music and everything, the broad vision she had, it's really difficult to do even with a team of, you know, two or three, but she was um, going at it, you know, by herself. And so it, um, I was really glad to be able to offer some support there. Um, through my work with Wisconsin Sea Grant and, you know, make this a partnership. And, um, but it was really Rochelle who came in with um, a lot of pre-research and episode ideas, outlines and connections to these different towns that we went to. And so, yeah, basically I joined once we started traveling to French Island, to Peshtigo. And, um, and then on the back end, my job has been more of editing and sound design and how do we bring people along on this trip instead of just telling them about it, you know, using that audio interview clips and, you know, sounds of in between houses, riding in cars and stuff to bring people along. And so, um, yeah, it's really been a team effort and Rochelle has been a great lead. Uh, I want to have both of you talk a little bit more about some of the people you met in a minute, but uh, give us a little bit more of a window, Bonnie, into behind the scenes. You mentioned how do you bring people along in a podcast? This is a great opportunity for people to see how this works in this medium. You mentioned uh, the da daily kind of sounds, background sounds. You mentioned music. Um, if there's one example or two examples you want to bring up of, of describe for us how you thought, oh, that needs something. Here's what is going to help bring people into this moment. Yeah. So we recorded on our trips. Um, we would, we had a schedule. We went from house to house and, um, I was, I had all the recording equipment and, and was kind of recording, you know, getting into the car or saying goodbye, saying hello and everything. And so um, I think being there in person was very rich and we were able to get some details that we wouldn't be able to. Like, you know, um, when we went to Peshtigo, it turned out everyone kind of knew each other either through childhood, they rode on the same school bus or they're like, oh yeah, that's Kayla's house. It's it's three blocks this way. And, and so some of those little audio snippets of we're able to characterize people, mm -hmm. I think 
I was trying to pay attention to like, how do we introduce people, but give them a little bit of their personality, you know? And so they're, they're more easily, um, you can remember them easier. So that, that's one example. Yeah, absolutely. Characterization is really important in audio, just as it is in print. Um, does an example come to mind for you, Rochelle? I wanted to say just how important it was for us to go to these communities and to do these interviews in person, because I think in an age of Zoom, it would have been really easy to say, let's just get everyone on a video call. Let's hear their stories that way. And of course, sometimes that is precisely what you have to do, depending on what your resources are. But I think for this project, I'm so grateful that we had the support of both MEA and Wisconsin Sea Grant to take those trips and to really make a day of it and to make our way into these communities. And that was how we were able to to meet people, to really kind of break bread with them, to see them in their space, to approach them um, in a way where they could be comfortable sharing their story with us and where we got all of this just kind of wonderful extra bonus um stuff you might say um in terms of just really feeling like we could connect with them in a way that isn't possible over a video call and so we i mean we heard a lot of great stories and and despite the fact that this is such a difficult reality for the folks that we spoke to they still had humor they still had levity there are moments where you know you can just hear us laughing and bonding and connecting and i think that that was just as much of the podcast as anything else yeah, that spirit of connection, of human connection and rapport really comes through in the podcast very nicely. That it is, this is not just a, a one-dimensional or one-tone kind of, let's take a deep dive into this really difficult, dour issue. Um, the people's experiences and the fullness, the richness, the complexity of their experiences related to the issue really comes through. And we heard that, for example, in the firefighter Mike Jorgensen's comments, you know, describing how he was at the root of this issue in his community. In, in some ways, right? But didn't know at the time that he was culpable. Um, and the complexity, the feeling that comes through around that. Um, tell us a little bit more about some of these people. Um, we haven't gotten to talk about Peshtigo. Both of you mentioned that um, just now um, because that clip or excuse me, that episode isn't uh, out yet, right? That's right. Um, but uh, tell us more about what's happening in Peshtigo and the people you met there. Yeah, so in Peshtigo, we spoke with um, Trigvi Rude, Ruth Kowalski, and Kayla Furton. And as Bonnie mentioned, it turns out they were all friends, you know, which we didn't know until we went there. But it's like, oh, Trig, I know him. And yeah, here's where Kayla's house is. Of course, they've all been working together. They've been going to the town meetings. They've really found some measure of solidarity in all of this. And I think another thing that really struck me was just how connected they were to their community that they loved you know, growing up in many cases in Peshtigo, um, Trigvi returned there after coming to UW-Madison for school and just found himself in his childhood community back right there on the Bay of Green Bay. It was beautiful. You could see that the love that these people had for their community. Ruth Kowalski is an educator, so, you know, she works with children and with youth. And I think that her passion came through on that. And Kayla Furton, she's a young mother, as well as, I, I believe, a local elected official. And so she's just 
had to become like a citizen expert on this thing overnight when she finds out that this house that she's invested a great deal in um, has PFAS contamination and she's worried about her kids and about the next generation. So we kind of heard from, you know, a variety of voices on this issue. But one thing that united them all was that they absolutely love living in Wisconsin. They love living in Peshtigo and they want to see this problem go away for them and their neighbors. It's not enough for them. You know, basically what we learned is that some of the community members were able to um, get support from Tyco, the polluters, um, so that their personal well systems have some kind of filtration, that they have bottled water coming in. But there are other community members, based on the way that the pollution maps were drawn, that are left out of this. And it was of a concern to all of them that all of their neighbors be um, included in the remediation efforts, um, as opposed to you know, those boundary lines that um, maybe they mean something on a map, but they don't mean anything when you're standing right there. I mean, something that Bonnie and I noticed was we were in the town or the city of Marinette and we're like, okay, well, we're supposed to be in Peshtigo and it says we're only, you know, one minute away. And then the next thing you know, there we are in Peshtigo and there it all is. And just that kind of arbitrary boundary between those communities um, has created a situation where not everyone's getting the support that they need. Bonnie, would you like to add anything about that trip to Peshtigo and the people you met there and how they impacted you? I think uh, Rochelle did a great job. I think, yeah, we heard a lot of similar things from the guests throughout um, Wisconsin. And they also acknowledged that this isn't just a Wisconsin issue. Mm -hmm. this is This is a global issue, really. And so... Um, that's one of the things that I hope we can do through the podcast is just show other people throughout the world, um, that are going through contamination, that you're not alone. Um, and hopefully people can make connections, share resources because, um, yeah, as one of our guests said, there's a, a corporate playbook that large corporations, um, use when they, are in you know legal trouble or whatever but there's no citizen playbook there's no you know citizens are really dealing with this on their own until they decide to come together so would you describe that bonnie as really kind of one of the purposes or takeaways from this podcast is to give some sense of a citizen's playbook or at least if not a do this do that a uh, sense of togetherness or connection around the issue yeah that is one of my hopes um, to connect people. I hope that, you know, we, we talked a lot about this is a very depressing topic, you know. Um, it's, it's tough stuff to hear. How do we tell in a way that is not just going to keep people down but spur them into action? So I hope that people, you know, take inspiration from the people who did start gathering in their community or started testifying, you know, um, and also that people know they're not alone and, you know, just getting these stories out there, I'm hoping um, does some good. Absolutely. And um, the podcast does a really great job, I think, of sort of pulling out um, key points about how to take action or the realizations that people made. Um, coming right out of seams. So there's little moments of analysis. So for example, you intervene at one point, Rochelle as the host and say, um, 
that PFAS contamination has really impacted people's trust in government. Mm. Um, you have these moments of, of analysis and they don't linger too long. You let mostly the people you talk to do the talking about the issue, but you plant this idea that then they then run with uh, and you, you flesh out what the impacts of that are for not only their community um, and their relationship with water in the case of um, French Island, but also their relationship with government. And of course, that relates to what Bonnie was just describing in terms of ways people are trying to take action. Uh, would you want to talk about that a little bit more, Rochelle, government and regulation and how you witnessed really this um, impact of people totally losing faith in something like a basic service like water? Yeah, that did become a huge theme. And actually, it's, I think, part of what inspired the title of public trust. Uh, we thought first of the public trust doctrine, which is basically that Wisconsin natural resources should be available to everyone. And that's a theme that runs throughout, but also the public's trust in all of these different institutions. And you know, when we were scripting this, we didn't like write a script and then go interview people and then try to kind of fit what they said into a preconceived notion that we had. We did these interviews first and we had a faint idea of the, some of the things they might say, um, just if they had gone on the record with a journalist before, or we kind of maybe understood a little what was going on in the community, but it was really led by the interviews. And those that was the raw material out of which we produced the podcast. And to understand this issue of trust in government, because that was a theme that kept coming up was like people, they said that their relationship to the government had changed in, in one way or another through dealing with this issue because they had to kind of negotiate with local government in a way maybe they never had before. And so I spoke to Manny Teodoro. He's a professor here at UW-Madison. And actually, he was interviewed on a public affair a couple years ago. So that's an episode folks can go check out. But he does a lot of interesting research into tap water and trust in government. And it turns out that if either your tap water is you know, unsafe for any reason, or even a community that you have an affinity with, their tap water is unsafe. That can diminish your trust in government because the most basic thing that they're supposed to do is provide these services such as safe, clean drinking water. So I think we had a lot of people who their relationship changed. And, you know, sometimes uh, folks want to get even more involved and they want to talk to their local representatives and they want to go on the record and they want to shout it from the rooftops. Um, there are some people who I think it leads to some resignation where they just feel like no one's ever going to care. We didn't really talk to anyone who who felt that way exactly. You can hear the passion in everyone we talked to, um, but that was definitely a recurring theme. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, it was remarkable in some sense in the two episodes that I could listen to so far that are out that uh, it seemed like that uh, sudden moment of realization I can't trust uh, my government, at least related to water, didn't lead to a... Uh, uh, run for the hills, kind of like I'm gonna, I'm gonna just do my own thing, um, or a kind of reactionary approach. It was I need to get involved. At least that's what you could hear in the podcast, and I was very struck by that. Yeah, absolutely. And according to someone like Manny Teodoro, you know, his research basically says that actually proves that there is a foundational trust in government. This idea that if I take action and if I speak up, something actually might happen to move the needle. So even if maybe some of that trust has wavered in, in the present moment, uh, I think part of what his research reveals is that when people get involved, it shows that there's like a basic level of trust. 
Mm -hmm. that there's a sense of agency still around the issue. Absolutely. And I think for them, the people we talked to, it was really important um, to share these stories. They were very generous with their time and they were very generous um, in sharing, you know, some really personal details for them. And I think that that was important and it did. It, It led us into the lives of people. You asked me earlier something that was surprising and it occurred to me, I think, I don't know if it was the most surprising, but one of the more striking things was just how this really does affect everyday life um, for the people who have PFAS contamination in their community. Mike and Penny Jorgensen um, are the primary caregivers for, I believe it's their niece, and they talked about how they can't use their swimming pool. They can't garden with their niece because you know, the, that the water, this may have already gotten into the plants and the vegetables. And so they're not able to necessarily have their vegetable garden the way that they would like to. They talked about how, yeah, even going to a local farmer's market, you have to ask yourself the question, mm-hmm. were these vegetables mm-hmm. grown in, in an environment where there could be PFAS? And it's like when you start to realize, man, that's a lot of mental math to be doing. And that must be absolutely exhausting. And it was, it, it's been tricky. I still feel like it is tricky to balance out the, the weight of that with the hope mm-hmm. that we also hear. Mm-hmm. We have just about a minute left, Bonnie. I want to turn it back to you quickly and give us a preview of what's forthcoming still in this podcast, Public Trust. Sure. We have episode three is coming out on Wednesday. And that is about this tribally-led research project that Gavin is leading at Wisconsin Sea Grant. Um, I was able to go up to the Lacouture Reservation with them this spring, and they were testing maple sap. I went along um, with my camera and audio gear. And um, for that episode, I tell Rochelle about that experience. We talked to some tribal members about the importance of all of these harvestable goods. And um, also, as Gavin alluded to, just how do we talk about PFAS? It is a big deal. It's also, we don't want to make, you know, encourage tribal members not to hunt, fish, and gather, which is extremely important to them and, you know, doesn't outweigh the risk necessarily of the contamination at whatever level it is. And we won't know for a while. Yeah, really important message, and I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there for the day. But I really want to thank you again, Bonnie Willison, for joining us, one of the Public Trust podcast producer and video and podcast producer with Wisconsin Sea Grant. Thanks for joining us, Bonnie. Thank you. And thank you, Rochelle, for coming in and joining me again today. Anytime, Douglas. And I'd also like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman. If you've enjoyed the program today, please share the online link on our archive or wherever you find your podcasts. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. Today, host David Aaron speaks with Kurt Dietrich, author of a new biography of jazz artist... Al Giroux.